Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Derek, and um, I have the just awesome privilege of working along with my wife and some of our amazing teams to be the kids and youth pastors around here. That's kind of our main uh, deal around here. So what we get to do is hang out with your kids on a Sunday morning. We have fun youth here on Wednesday nights. But every once in a while, I have the honor of getting to talk to all of the adults. And so if we're honest, all of us are kids at heart, okay? So there's really no difference. Some of us just have a little bit, you know, taller builds and more so than the little five-year-olds. But um, if you're like me, you still have a five, five-year-old heart, so that's all good. Um, but I just want to thank Chris uh, for just giving me the opportunity to share this because it is an opportunity. Funny story about uh, talking about today's sermon. Chris asked me to, to speak on Hosea chapter 2, and I am familiar with the book of Hosea, but I don't know it chapter by chapter. And so I was like, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd gladly you know, do chapter 2. And you kind of gave me this sly grin. And I was like... Okay, don't know what that's about. I just dismissed it, whatever. Chris is always, you know, up to something. So I didn't think anything of it. And then last week, you know, he, he preaches and, and we're talking and he's getting, he, you know, he's talking through like what's going on this week, that kind of stuff. He's like, you ready for chapter two? And I was like, yeah, I feel good about it. He goes, good luck. When your pastor says good luck for a sermon, that's never a good sign, okay? That's never a good sign. But in all sincerity, um, this is a challenging book, but also I, I, I am asking all of you to do me a favor, okay? I'm asking you to hang with me, okay? Because the first part of my sermon might seem like, sweet, all my suspicions about church are spot on, I'm out of here, um, you know, but I promise there is a turn, okay? I like suspense movies, and there's always a turn in a suspense movie, so there is a turn, so just hang with me. But again, I am super excited today because Hosea is a goofy and awesome book all at the same time. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, Hosea is a book of the Bible written in the Old Testament. And shocker, this is going to be very surprising, the writer of the book is named Hosea. I know it threw some of us for a loop, but that his, Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. And what that basically means is before we had speakers, before we had pastors and all this stuff, God would speak to his people through prophets, and he would say, I have a word for these people. I want you to share it with them, and they would share it, and they were virtually pastors. So Hosea lives out his life, but God used Hosea differently, okay? God used Hosea's life as an example of what he's doing. And so if you're taking notes, there's note sheets on the back. If you want one, just raise up your hand, and an usher will get one for you, um, but the book of Hosea is really just one big metaphor. Is there anyone in here who just lives by metaphors? Anybody? I try so hard to give metaphors for my wife, and she just shakes her head and laughs at me because they don't make any sense. In my head, I'm like, oh, this metaphor makes perfect sense. And she's like, no, I'm not tracking with you. But fortunately, Hosea is a great metaphor. And what I mean by a metaphor is Hosea is a man, okay? We can, we can assert that. Hosea is a man. And so one day, Hosea is living his life, doing whatever he does, and God comes to him and says, Hosea, I want you to get married. And he's like, sweet, I'll gladly get married, awesome. 
And then God goes, but I want you to get married to a promiscuous woman. If I was Hosea in that moment, I'd kind of be like, I'm sorry. What was that last part? When I talk about dating relationships in youth group, typically I don't suggest finding a promiscuous woman to marry, okay? That's not typically the dating advice I give to our youth students. You're welcome. You're welcome. I will continue to do that. So when I'm like, sometimes I'm like, okay, how does this make any sense? But the reason he does this, and this is what I, I love about the book of Hosea, he uses Hosea and his life as a symbol of God's relationship with his people Israel. And it's this seriously beautiful word picture because we have this man who's a faithful servant of God and he's doing exactly what God is telling him to do. And he's married to this woman who her eyes are on a whole bunch of different things. And yet Hosea still loves her through it. And you can see on the video that that's where the video ties in. It's all about him trying to work it through. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But really, even though it's physically happening on earth between Hosea and his wife Gomer, it's really a symbolic representation of how God feels about his people Israel who have gotten a little off course. And so... Chris talked, all about, he, Chris talked all about chapter 1 last week, and um, it was all about just setting the scene, really, and how, you know, Hosea marries Gomer, and then they have these three kids, and they name their kids off of, you know, what God was going to do. And so it's, it's Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. Those are his three kids' names. It basically means God has no mercy for you, God's going to disown you, and I can't remember what the last one is, but... Typically, I know my wife and I are planning having a kid. I don't plan on naming one of our kids as a symbol of, like, yes, destruction, you know. Uh, so I'll have to ask her. But, you know, I don't think that's in the plans. So imagine all this happening. And, you know, the, the beginning of chapter 1 begins and God's, like, super upset. And then at the end, he's like, but don't worry. It's all going to be good in the end. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a good story. And then we get to chapter 2, which I have the awesome privilege of, and it's going to be amazing. Because it talks about, you know what, there's going to be hope, everything's going to be good, it's going to be awesome. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, there's this big but. And that's when all the kids and kids are to be like, they start to laugh, you know, because I said but. But we're an adult, so it's kind of a pleasant surprise every once in a while. But, B-U-T, there's a big but in chapter 2. And so I'm going to read through 12 verses in here. So they're going to be on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. If you've got a version app on your phone with the Bible, you can do that. You just do you, okay? I'm easy going. So starting in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness. And I will not love her children, for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after lo other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and of linen, and for olive oil and drinks. For this reason, I will fence her in with short thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. 
When she runs after her lover, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. Then she will think, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything she has, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. But now I will take back the ripened grain and new wine. I will generously provide each harvest season. I will take away the wool and linen clothing I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations, and her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will destroy her grapevines and fig trees, things she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow in tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat the fruit. And I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal. And she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. See you guys. God's mad. He is ticked off, okay? Like, geez, what an encouraging thing you're saying, God. It gives me the warm fuzzies, right? Like, you can tell he's a little upset, you know? And he's using very graphic imagery of, you know, her being a prostitute, you know, like, just exposing her before all of her so-called lovers and doing all of these awful things. And you're going, that's the wrath of God that I'm used to hearing about, right? That is the wrath that everyone just hears about and they know and they're going through. And I'm reading this and I'm going, wow. You know, I've heard of God using some strong language, but man, this is intense. And so let's dissect it a little bit because I want to get to the good part. The first thing God says is your mother, or also known as Israel, Israel is no longer my wife. So what he's really doing here is he's disassociating himself as the father with his kids, Israel. To put this in context of Hosea and Gomer, imagine you are married to your wife, Gomer. You have kids. You're a happy family for a while. But all of a sudden you start realizing that your wife is going around with other men getting hotels and with, with other men, is doing all these different things. And like we saw in the video, he's trying to make it work. You know, he's trying to go to counseling to, to, to repair this relationship. He's trying to do everything he can to make it work. But still, at the end of the day, she wants nothing to do with them. And, she go, and, and, and God or Hosea is going, you know, enough is enough. Finally, like I, I, the, I, I'm trying to make this work, but it takes two to tango, Right? If she, if, she, if she doesn't want to come, then I can't. I can't do it. And so he's saying, you're no longer my wife. And what he's basically saying is, you're not acting like my wife. This covenant that we had, it's, it's not working. And so that hurts, right? That hurts. Let's put it back into the context of God and Israel. To really fully understand how powerful this thing is. Because, not going to lie, if my dad told me, I am a, you are a disgrace to this family. I no longer even consider you my son. That'd be like, that'd be a little painful, you know? That'd be a lot painful. But this is more than just that, okay? We're talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. And Israel at the time, if you look throughout the Old Testament, was God's people. When you consider the nation of Israel, they were literally called God's people. And it's, it's really crazy. I was reading my own personal devotions a couple days ago. And they were talking about Israel. God was talking to all the people. And he was like, you are my special treasure. Who's got kids or grandkids in the room? 
Would you admit that your kids and or grandkids are your special treasure? Okay. So imagine that. Everything, you just think your kids are just so amazing to you. And all of a sudden, like, everything is just so in disarray that, you know, you have to say, I can no longer call you my son. That's a big deal. And... You know, this wasn't like this wasn't like the first time Israel had screwed up, okay? If we're honest, Israel was kind of a brat, all right? They were just like not the most faithful people. Like God brings them out of slavery in Exodus, and you know, they're whining like, oh, we can't, we don't have any food, we're so hungry. And so God rains down bread, and they can eat all the bread they want, and they're going, oh, this bread is not good enough. We need some meat for it. I want a Chick-fil-A chicken breast on top of this bread. And so God brings down that, and then, oh, now we're thirsty. So now we've got to smack a rock with a staff, and water falls out, and they're still complaining that the water's not purified. No, I made that part up. But still, they are kind of a brat. But why would God go as far as to say, you're no longer my people. I disassociate with you. It's because the relationship was so broken that it was as if there was no relationship at all. There's no relationship there anymore. It's not that he was just saying, I want to make it hurt. He's, he's going, there's, there's nothing there. I can't logically call you my people because to, to, I'm just a stranger to you, and I feel like you're just a stranger to me. There's nothing there. So what does he do next? He talks about, I'll fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall. When she runs after her lover, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them. He goes on and on and on. Okay. So... I saw most of you are grandparents and or parents in here. Can I just see hands one more time? Parents and or grandparents. Okay. You're probably familiar with what God's doing here, right? You don't have to show a hand by this, but maybe you've even done this today. Sometimes there needs to be a little bit of discipline into the mix of things, right? Or maybe it was just my parents that disciplined me. Maybe I was just a brat. Maybe. He's disciplining them. What he's basically doing with all of these verses, I'll dissect it a little bit here. He's saying, I gave you all these crazy vineyards with a whole bunch of ripe grapes. I gave you all this food, but now I'm turning, going to turn it into weeds. I'm going to make it so there's nothing there. It's, it's barren. You used to walk around with this swagger because you were confident Israel. Like, you would show up with your 30 wimpy little soldiers to a, you know, a whole bunch of huge armies. And because God was with them, you would just, like, Israel would slaughter you know, they had all this swagger and this confidence. He's going, good luck, guys. Have fun. You're going to get embarrassed now. And then, finally, when stuff hits the fan, they have been running to these so-called gods. They're going to look for relief, and they're not going to find any. They're not going to find any. So, again, let's put it into context. This is all good and dandy, but let's be honest. We don't live in a day and age where when we have a disagreement, we go with all of our armies and kill each other to see who wins, Okay. Like, now it's just a Twitter war, a tweet war, whatever. So let's put this into context, okay? Judging by what I see on a Wednesday night, for those with teenagers in the room, our teens love their phones, don't they? They love their phones. I'm one of them. I am glued to my phone all of the time. So let me give you a hypothetical situation, okay? What happens if all of a sudden you start to notice that your teen is getting a lot more moody every time they're on their phone. 
because when they're going through Snapchat, they see all of their classmates being mean to their parents, and they think it's, it's awesome, it's cool. Or what happens if you stumble upon something that they're talking to somebody you necessarily want to talk, have them talking to, or they're looking at things they shouldn't be looking at? Let's say you stumble upon that. What would be the first thing, logically, that you would probably do once you found that out? Take the phone away, right? Maybe for those parents that are more intense, they'd be like the phone, like, oh, you think this is your phone? Just chuck it at the wall or something? I've been slightly tempted to do that every once in a while on a Wednesday night. Funny story about our senior pastor, Chris. He was telling me one time there was a girl in his youth group when he was a youth pastor a couple moons ago, and there was this person who would perpetually have their phone out. And so he had kindly asked, like, hey, Tonight, I want your phones up in this basket. You can get them afterwards. And so a lot of people did that, but there was this one student who wanted to test our senior pastor, who was a youth pastor at the time. And so finally, he made a threat saying, if I see another phone, I will take your phone, list it on eBay, and sell it and use the money for missions. The student didn't think he would do it. Pulls out the phone. He walks down into the crowd grabs the phone, sets it up on there, that night puts it on eBay, sends a picture to the parent's mo- or the kid's parent and said, you're going to have to pay me for it if they want to get it back. He ended up giving it back, but let me tell you what. He told me that that student never bought their phone to youth group ever again. So I won't do that unless I have your permission to and you want me to. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not that mean. Yet. Yet. Exactly. So you would take their phone away. But why would you want to take their phone away? I love what Hosea puts here, or what God is saying to his people. He wants to do it so that then they'll think, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. You see, what Hosea really wants, you know, what, what God really wants in this whole thing is he just wants his people back. That's all he wants. He's seen that they're going through things. He's seen that they're, they're, they're drifting, you know? Like, when your kids are going through things that you know aren't good for them and they think they're better, you know it's not good for them, but they think opposite. And so when you take it away, they might hate you, right? They might say, I hate you, you know? I can't believe you're doing this. Like, I, I want to be free. I want to be a teenager or whatever. And then when they realize the world's maybe not so welcoming, then they come back and go, I'm sorry, you were right. I know you just have my best interest in mind. That's the heart behind all of this. This is not, you know, a, a, a time for God just to unleash his wrath, you know. And so all this is happening, but why, like, why would God be so upset about what's going on here? What's the big deal? What, do they have, what could they have done that's so bad that God has to go into this 13-verse tangent about how awful they are? For those who are familiar with a little bit of Old Testament, if you're not, that's fine. You have God that we all talk about that I'm talking about now. Another name for God is Yahweh. That, that's a Hebrew name for God. And so they had Yahweh, but there's also these pagan gods, little g, that would be so-called things to worship. So uh, they would have a god for fertility and for agriculture and for all this. So if I pray to this God, then I'm going to have a good harvest. They had a, a, a God for water saying, I'm going to pray to this God if we're in a drought because then they'll bring water. And then they would have all these different rituals 
And so the one that Israel at the time when this was written was so obsessed with was Baal or Baal, if you want to go by the Hebrew language. And so what they would do is Baal, as Chris talked about, was the fertility god. He was the agriculture god. And so Israel's going, you know what, God the Father, Yahweh, like, you give us some good stuff, but we want to go over to this god a little bit and see if we can get something from him. You know, a little bit of mixing here and see if we can get some more greed, some more crops, all this different stuff. But here was the different thing about worshiping this god Baal. Rather than having musical worship and doing all this kind of different stuff, their worship involved ritualistic sex with prostitutes. Little different than what we did this morning, okay? A little different. So not only are they worshiping another god, which God really doesn't want in the first place because he's a jealous god and he loves to love one person, it also involves them getting super off course and doing things that maybe aren't the best. And so they're really getting off course at this point at this point, and finally, as we're seeing here in the verse, as I mentioned earlier, God just he he wants to get him back, so he'll go to whatever length he can to get him back, and that length involves correction or discipline or punishment. I'll be the first to say I hate punishment. Does anyone in here love punishment? Probably not. Like some people are like, yeah, bring it on, Let's see what you got. You know, that wasn't me. Like, my dad would maybe, like, have to sit me down and, like, you know, take things away. I'll never forget a time that I wanted to ride this nice John Deere tractor. I was seven years old. I wanted to drive because at seven years old, no one would put their kid in the front seat of a car unless they were in some random cornfield. So I wanted to drive, and my dad's like, okay, you can drive this nice John Deere tractor, but you can't brag about it to the other kids or else they're going to want to do it. What's the first thing I did? It wasn't so fun when Dad said, okay, that's it. You're not driving the John Deere. I, I threw a temper tantrum, whatever, but seven-year-olds do best. Never worked. Tried puppy eyes, you know, all the tricks in the bag. Didn't work. And it was not fun. But what I learned that day and what's going to be on the screen here in a little bit is that we need to change how we see punishment. We need to see how we look at discipline because in order to be punished or corrected or disciplined, we have to realize we must first have someone who loves us too much to leave us where we're at. The reason God is doing this with, with Israel is because he doesn't want to see him get destroyed. He's not trying to be the bad guy. He just loves him way too much to see him destroy themselves. And all the parents in the room are saying, amen. That's what I've been trying to tell my kids. So when you do discipline your kids, is it because you want to assert your dominance? Probably not. Sometimes maybe, if we're being honest. I'm calling the shots, all right? Secondly, are you going to be like, oh, I just want to strive to make your life miserable? I hear some snickers. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I've heard that before. But is it because you know just how amazing they are, just how much they can accomplish? You don't want to see them compromise out with what they're currently doing. That's, that's the heart behind everything we do. Where do you think we got that from? The one who did it first. The first father. The one who gave it to us. So today, we're sitting in church, all of us. It doesn't matter if you have been a believer from the time you came out of the womb, or maybe you're not even considering God. You don't even believe in God. 
no matter where you're at in that spectrum, at some point in our life, at some point today probably even, we're going to make a mistake. You see, as Chris mentioned last week, in this story between Hosea and Gomer, guess who we are? We're Gomer. We're the prostitute that's unfaithful. And that's not a, that's not a hit us over the head, make us feel bad. That's just a reality of life. We can't be perfect. Adam and Eve messed that one up a while ago. Okay? And, we're, and, we're, and we're, we're still in that. So what God does in our life is he sometimes has to push us in one way, push us back on track. And so when that happens, just know it's not an attack on who we are. It's an attack on the behavior that keeps us from who we can be. That's really where it's at. And so let me just give one more caveat, and then I want to bring us back to the turn. Okay? There's been some well-meaning people that have used God's punishment as a way to explain your life. The reason you lost your job is because maybe you have some unconfessed sin in your life, and, and that's what God's trying to do. Maybe, but probably not. For those who go through mental illness sometimes, Christians want to say, you know, maybe there's something in your life that you need to get right, and that's why you're having depression. Sometimes, sometimes. But mental illness is a physical and psychological thing in your brain that may have nothing to do with what's going on in your life. So let me just say, God has a way of getting us back on course, but just know that not everything that bad happens in your life is because God's trying to get, he's trying to punish you. Sometimes you've got to go through some bad things to get to something that's better. It was, G, it was God who called Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to test him, to make him stronger, and to make him a better and more effective minister. So sometimes bad things happen in our life, and sometimes it's God's way of saying, I want to get you back on track, but sometimes it's saying, I want to teach you something. I want to get you into something that's so good and so awesome. So all this wrath goes on, and I'm not going to read this whole next passage, but there's another big but after that. And the but is, I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her to her vineyards and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. And when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. No godly correction ever ends in doom, ever. It always results in hope, every single time. Every single time. If you're in a season right now where you feel like God is maybe like trying to get a hold of you and you're resisting, don't just know he's not going to be up there with his mighty rod waiting to strike you down. That's not what is happening here. It's saying I'm going to transform the valley of trouble or the valley of sin into a gateway of hope. A gateway. A valley is closed off and tiny and narrow, but a gateway is big and wide. What I love about this book, what I love about Jose, is it's such a beautiful word picture of who we are to God. You see, because no story is ever left unfinished with God. It doesn't matter where you started, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what you've done in your life. There's always another chapter. There's always a new chance to get something right. And all we have to do is simply say, Jesus, I need you right now in this. You see, what God is doing, what he's, what this big turn is all about is he's saying, tell you what, I'm going to bring the punishment, but you can end it anytime you want. 
I'm not doing this to make you miserable, Israel. I'm not doing this just to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm doing this because I have such an amazing life planned for you. I have such amazing things for you to do. It's because of Israel that we're all sitting in this, really, if we're being honest. It's because of the descendants that would come down from this nation of Israel that Jesus even came into this world. He knew there was a bigger story at, at hand. And some, he just had to get us back on track. That's all he was doing. As I was praying throughout this weekend, I had, I had my sermon all done. I had it all ready to go. And I was sitting on my porch, just kind of hanging out, enjoying the weather. And I was reminded of one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It talks about two men who each walk into a temple. The first man was like, God, you are good. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for making me as awesome as I am. Thank you that, you know, I can give all of my money to the church and to the synagogue and to the temple. And I do all these things. And I thank you that I'm doing all these great things for you. Then there's another man that walks in. And the Bible says that he walks in, he falls to his knees, and he bangs his chest going, God, I am, I am messed up. I screw up all of the time. And I am so sorry. I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but I love you and I thank you. And the Bible says that it was that man, the man who screwed up all the time, that walked out righteous before his sight. You see, it's not about being perfect. If you want to think about imperfection, you want to think about all the things that we screw up, just ask my wife. I've got lots of them, okay? We all mess up. Even the pastors of the world, even the popes of the world, even the Billy Grahams of the world. We were at a conference and someone asked Billy Graham, you know, like, how are you feeling? Like, you're on, you know, you're on your deathbed. Like, like how are you feeling? He goes, I feel good. I think I know where I'm going, but I'm still not perfect. For Billy Graham to say that, one of the most powerful evangelists that has ever walked this earth other than Jesus, that's a powerful thing. And so wherever you're out today, I just want to give you hope. Because it'd be so easy to hear all of the wrath and just be like, man, God's coming for me. And that's not what this is about. It's about the hope. It's about knowing that God loves us way too much to leave us where we're at right now. He's going to challenge you, I promise you that. When I came to this church, I had zero kids ministry experience. But he brought me here because he knew there was something better coming. And it's been the greatest journey of my life to this point. So he's going to challenge you, I promise you that. But it never ends in doom, never ends in destruction, it always results in hope. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.